0: This is a podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. It's something that people talked endlessly about in the lead-up to the vote in uh, June of 2016 and then spoke endlessly about it in the two or three years after that. And then COVID came along and, well, whatever happened to Brexit? Brexit. Because depending on who you believe, it's either the biggest foreign policy disaster of the 21st century or the liberation of Britain from the bonds of Europe, the restrictive bonds of Europe. Brexit goes to the heart of the British identity and the UK's place in the world, as well, more importantly, perhaps, is the future of its economy. However... Pretty much like everything else, it's been uh, overshadowed by the coronavirus. And because COVID and the UK's formal exit from the EU happened pretty much simultaneously in early 2020, it's been particularly difficult to unscramble that egg and look at how Brexit has affected the UK's economy in isolation. However, right now, Richard Hughes, the Chairman of the UK's Office of Budget Responsibility, he's predicting that leaving the EU will reduce the UK's potential GDP by about 4% in the long term, and that is a massive amount. If you have 4% growth in your GDP every year, you are doing very, very well. If you have a 4% decline every year, you're going pretty badly. That is double the impact that the coronavirus is expected to have in the UK, causing a contraction of about 2%. And with the recent panic buying of petrol in the UK, as well as food and alcohol shortages in the lead-up to Christmas, it is very clear now that uh, the nation is adjusting uncomfortably to this new reality. Prime Minister Boris Johnson was one of the leading advocates of Leave, well, they painted a rosy picture, he and the Vote Leave campaign, of Brexit. So, with these current difficulties, how do those promises look? All those things that were said about Britain and what the advantages of leaving the EU, did they ever come to pass? And what about Boris Johnson now? He might be popular with the pepper Pig crowd but perhaps not with the rest of the voters, or indeed, more importantly, perhaps to his uh, political future with his own party. We are talking about Brexit this morning for our talking point. Our guest this morning is Jill Rutter. She's a senior research fellow at the think tank UK in a changing Europe, an experienced former civil servant, having worked previously at the Treasury at number 10 and the Department of the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. And she is with us from the UK. Jill, good morning. Welcome to Overnights.
1: Good morning,
0: Rott. Where were you on the night of the 23rd of June, 2016? And what did you think about when you heard the result?
1: So I was at home because uh, I had established a tradition where I worked. I was working at a place called the Institute for Government, a think tank. And I'd established a tradition of having people around for an election night party. But the year before, 2015, I hadn't had an election night party. So I thought, well, I'll make it up to them. I'll have them around for a referendum night party, or be a bit of fun, like lots of other people, particularly people living in London. We assumed, you know, Remain would win and we'd all just go back to getting on with our lives the next day. So I had a barbecue on my roof terrace. It wasn't very nice weather. I didn't get the barbecue hot enough. So we ended up eating rather late. And then we turned on the television, the results, like they do in UK elections. Started to come in around uh, 10, just after 10 o'clock. We got the early declarations. And then I started getting messages from friends around the world, friends. And I remember a friend of mine in Sydney uh, WhatsApping me with a message. I think it was WhatsApp or um, texting me with a message saying, this is going to be a high price to pay to get some more passport stamps because she knows I really like getting hmm. passport stamps. So, uh, And we watched as Sterling gyrated around. And I think at about 4 or 5 a.m. that morning, uh, David Dimbleby, who always chairs our election broadcasts, announced that, uh, that leave was so far ahead that it w- had definitively won. And I had various colleagues still lurking around here. And I thought, well, go to bed. And then we heard that we were all being summoned into work that morning to plan what we were going to do about Brexit. So I managed to go for about 37 hours uh, without sleeping.
0: It was said at the time that if there was another vote the next day, Remain would win in a landslide. And if you combine the people who didn't vote with the Remain votes, again, remain, remain would have won the landslide. Do you believe that?
1: Well, it was undoubtedly true that it was a minority of the total electorate who voted to leave. That's undoubtedly true, but equally you could say it was yes. an even bigger minority of the total electorate who voted Remain. And the way in which this referendum was set up was there was no sort of special criterion. We've had that in other elections. We did that... In a referendum on devolution to Scotland back in 1979, we had a threshold which said it wasn't enough just to get a simple majority. You you had to pass a threshold uh, on the total number of people who are eligible to vote. But David Cameron, when he uh, drew up the rules for his referendum, he just went with the normal franchise we use in general elections, didn't let EU citizens vote didn't let 16 and 17-year-olds vote. He'd been allowed to vote a couple of years earlier on the Scottish independence referendum up in Scotland. Um, So, And he didn't have any sort of special consideration. So it was, you know, as he interpreted, all the political parties said they would honour the result of that vote, which then caused lots and lots of problems, um, probably assuming that it was pretty much a shoe-in for Remain. I think David Cameron definitely assumed that uh, I think David Cameron just assumed he won everything in life, and it's going to be pretty much like that on this, and he'd get back to the business of being prime minister rather than announcing his resignation the next morning. Um, so he just said 50% plus one vote of the people who bothered to rock up, that's enough for it, and we can be done with this and move on. So um, so you may be right, You may be, but one of the things that was really, really interesting in the wake of the Brexit vote was if you repolled, very few people changed their minds or told pollsters right. they were changing their minds. Those vote shares, that famous 52 48, 48 pretty much stuck there. There was very little, you know, uh, levers' remorse or even sort of remainers' reconversion. Yes. Some remainers saying, Well, I voted remain, but you have to honor the results of the referendum. Some levers deciding that actually maybe it was a mistake you know this wasn't turning out the way they thought um but as you've been saying it's only in fact over the last year since the uh since the first of january 2021 that we've experienced the economic impacts uh direct economic impacts of a much more distant relationship with the european union but i do want to correct you on one thing Rod, uh, about what richard hughes said um he did predict a four percent decline, but not four percent decline every year, thank goodness, because yes. that would be really, really in the bad. Long run, yeah. What what he said was in the long run the UK economy four percent smaller than if we'd stayed in the EU. Yeah. So bad, but not quite that bad. Yes, I mean if you would
0: went down four percent every year, really obviously you end up with nothing almost. But uh yes, it's that would 4% be So still, yeah. so it'd be four percent
1: lower than we would have been in some future in yes. which we'd stayed in that relationship, the government, of course, doesn't accept that estimate. The Chancellor, uh, you know, our Treasurer was asked about that at a select committee meeting uh, two or three weeks ago. He brought down his budget and asked if he accepted that. And he said, Oh, well, that was just a sort of, you know, forecast and, mm. you know, you can't trust those forecasts, can you? So, no. anyway.
0: Well, hmm. However, the, those who chose or voted to leave did so without really knowing the consequences. They may have hoped for certain things, but they couldn't possibly have known the consequences of their vote maybe affecting fishermen or fisher uh, people. Um, in France and England, you know, who've been uh, having this sort of spat, this ongoing battle. There's so many different effects. So the main reasons that people voted to leave, or that were presented to them as being the benefits of them li- voting to leave, what were the top two or three there, and have they actually come true? Have that has that transpired?
1: So if you go through the big big uh, promises of the Leave campaign, so the big The big slogan we all remember from the Leave campaign was that it was about taking back control. So the first one was take back control of our borders. And the government has, you could say, delivered on that. We have a problem at the moment with some small boats coming across the Channel. Um, But apart from that, we now have a very different migration regime in the UK to the one we had. We don't have free movement of labour from the EU anymore. Uh, we have arguments about whether that's meaning we're suffering from quite uh, quite bad labor shortages in certain key sectors that 's a different argument but um, but the government certainly introduced a different lab, different regime uh, so that's changed. Uh, it was take back control of our money so we'd no, no longer make a contribution to the EU budget we 're still paying down our sort of outstanding debts to the EU that we negotiated the withdrawal agreement. but once we 've done that. Uh, we won't be making any more contributions to the EU budget. Now, Vote Leave said, well, of course, that'll free up loads more money. We can invest in the National Health Service, things like that. That was the big slogan on the side of the bus. Uh, Only problem there is if you agree with the assessment from the Office for Budget Responsibility, the effect of having a smaller economy means you have much less money to spend and that actually overwhelms the relatively small amounts we used to send across uh, as our net contribution to the European Union. So, um, so yes, at one level, we've done that. At another level, you might say we don't actually have, we're not actually better off as an economy. We don't have more money to chuck around. Right. Uh, he's, we, they said we take control of our waters. Uh, so this fishing thing, well, not yet, because as part of the uh, big trade agreement with the EU on Christmas Eve last year, we agreed a deal to give the EU continuing access to our waters, though at a slightly lower level, for the next five and a half years from then. Uh, after that time, we could theoretically shut them out. But if we shut them out, they shut us out of their markets. So that probably won't happen. Um, and a lot of our fishers are really, you know, some of them are very disappointed. There was a big move in fishing communities, as you were saying. They hated the EU's common fisheries policy felt they'd been sold out when the UK joined the uh, common market back in the 1970s, a big support for leave there. But now quite a lot of them realise that it's much harder for them to sell their goods into the EU than it was. So I think there's some really quite unhappy fishermen uh, fishermen lurking around. <laughs> and the final one was taking back control of our laws that we will be able to make rules here in the UK rather than uh, be subject to uh, rules coming out of Brussels. Uh, I think suffice to say that this is uh, an area where the government hasn't done that much yet, um, but it is one where the government is saying it can see some big opportunities here. Other people are saying, well, are you sure You know, they don't like those great opportunities? And a lot of businesses are saying, well, actually, we want to export into the EU, so we're going to be meeting their rules anyway, uh, irrespective of whether you change right. things here. So we might see some changes there. Not always in the EU thinks that the UK might become a sort of deregulators paradise. They're worried and still express worries that the UK will become what they term Singapore on Thames, a massively deregulated economy. But among a lot of Leave voters, there's not much appetite for them. And one of the real problems for the government was Leave very cannily never said what leave would look like. Mm. And that meant they could stitch together lots of people who had very different reasons for voting leave. Some people voted leave just because they hated the government, hated David Cameron. Others because they felt the impacts of um, seven years of austerity since the global financial crisis, uh, maybe blame migrants for the fact that they couldn't get an appointment to see their doctor. Uh, There are other people who had this vision of a buccaneering, deregulated uh, Britain, you know, reestablishing its links to Commonwealth countries who'd be welcoming us back to, you know, remember we talked about Empire 2.0, not sure that went down that well Mm. with the other people who were supposed to be part of Empire 2.0, things like that. So there were very different visions of Brexit there. And I don't think, I think one thing you could definitely say, was there was no majority for any one vision of what Brexit meant.
0: Jill Rutter is our guest as we talk about the implications now, the effect of Brexit. So you mentioned the free movement of labour. So the truck driver shortage that we saw recently, which led to a petrol shortage or at least panic buying of petrol, coming off the back of COVID and a lot of panic buying of products there as well, not knowing what is going to happen in the very near future, let alone the long term future. Was it actually related to Brexit? What actually happened? And and the government, as usual, says don't panic and people don't take any notice of that. So was <laughs> yeah. that uh, Brexit that caused that and why did it suddenly go away?
1: So it's sort of there are sort of mix of there are a mix of things and at UK Interchange of Europe where I work just mentioned we did a we did a piece called is it Brexit or is it COVID about various of these things so there are truck driver shortages in quite a lot of countries across uh, across Europe um, uh, but the UK seems to be particularly hard hit uh, quite a lot of European drivers it was one of the sectors that was quite dependent on European labour Quite a lot of those EU workers who were here and could stay working in the UK uh, went home because of COVID, and don't seem to have come back now. Why is that? Is that because they see borders going up? Because COVID restrictions made it harder to travel between places um, within Europe, between the European Union and the UK. UK is the third country now, so they might have been worried they'd be stranded in the wrong country. Quite a lot of uh, haulage drivers have swapped what. You know, many of them reckon are pretty lousy jobs with poor conditions, for jobs that are much more compatible with their family lives. By becoming drivers for Amazon and uh, things like that, you know, you can drive a nice little truck around your neighbourhood, go and stay at home overnight rather than sleep in a uh, the cab of your uh, of your long distance truck. Uh, so some of them have done that. We faced a general problem in the UK. That we had a very aging population of truck drivers. And we also, for COVID related reasons, did very few uh, tests for new HGV drivers, so heavy goods vehicle drivers, last year. So it was a combination of those factors. So there was an underlying problem that the truck drivers have been warning about for some time, but undoubtedly compounded by the UK becoming a much less attractive destination for EU truck drivers already entitled to stay here uh, and obviously shutting off the future supply. So the government responded by handing out a few short-term visas, but I don't think there's been that much takeoff. Um, The sort of fuel shortages were a classic panic buy that, as you saw people queuing up at petrol forecourts, you thought, oh my God, I'm going to run out. I need to go queue at a petrol forecourt. That sort of evened itself out, as I think people realized they could get to the petrol. So we're not hearing too much of that anymore. But people are warning that there will be uh, supply chain glitches in various places. Another place where we're suffering from a lack of EU labor is in food processing, in abattoirs. Brits don't really like working in abattoirs don't really like working in food pressing processing factories. Those were very dependent on Eastern European labour. So we hear, you know, will you get your turkey for Christmas? You get your turkey early. Uh, we've got pigs being culled on farms because they've got uh, too big to go to market and there aren't the people to, uh, to slaughter them yeah. in the abattoirs and things like that. So we've got those sorts of glitches coming out. Yeah, you know, but all those things I think are more Brexit related.
0: Yeah, but and those things could have been warned about by the Remain arguers before the vote, but no one would have believed them because we hear politicians make these extraordinary claims. If you vote for the other side, you won't get Christmas. And that's just the same thing here. They could have said the remains could have said, "If you vote leave, there'll be no turkeys or pork or pigs or porks, whatever uh, pork for Christmas," and people would not have believed them.
1: No, I think I think one of the things that's really interesting is about the role of immigration in this. David Cameron, uh, I mean, I think Remain recognised that the dislike of the very high levels of migration that we had seen since uh, since the accession of the Eastern European countries, the EU in 2004 was really their Achilles heel in the campaign. So they didn't wanna make a case saying, you just don't realize how dependent we are on European labor. Uh, they did try and warn about the economy and said that there will be very bad economic impacts from leaving the EU. And they actually thought that would be enough to win the campaign. Uh, there's lots of debates. We've got a sort of, you know, done a big job interviewing people involved in the campaigns. And the Remain campaign was highly criticized for not presenting any sort of positive vision of why it was good for the UK to stay in the EU. After all, all our political parties had always been blaming things on the EU yes, and exactly. suggesting the UK had very little agency there uh, and were accused of running Project Fear of saying, you know, don't take this leap into the unknown. It's going to be really, really bad and stuff like that. But they didn't say the specifics, which is, you know, vote, leave, turkey, free Christmas. And I don't think actually probably people understood quite the critical role that uh, EU Labour played in some of these sectors to make those warnings.
0: If Europe had been, uh, you know, painted as the bad guy, the bogeyman for decades then you can't just turn around and say, oh, actually, you know, it's not that bad after all. We've been telling you a lie the whole time. So you can't do that. Um, Now, quite a few texters want to know about, when they talk about borders, Scotland and Ireland in particular. I'll get to a couple of uh, our texters in a moment, but Owen wants to uh, bring up this, uh, this topic. Good morning, Owen.
1: Uh, well, uh, welcome back, Rod, and um, gr- you. greetings to Jill. I'll try and make this as as possible. Um, the first thing is I wanted to know, what does Jill think the
0: likelihood
1: of Britain uh, rejoining um, the EU in the, uh, in the next generation would be? Because Labour and uh, the Tories, for various reasons, would be very unwilling to connect to it. And even if they did, right. the e- EU would, uh, wouldn't want them to sort of make it easy to well, come we'll back. We'll see what
0: about that, uh, yep, right. Mm.
1: Um, my second point is um, uh, now, in the unlikely event that Scotland ever um, voted for independence, what would its chances of joining the EU be? Because I can see that places like Spain would be a bit worried that it would set an unhealthy close precedent or somewhere like Catalan. So I was just okay. curious about that.
0: All right, Owen, thank you very much for that. Jill Rutter is our guest. So, just that first one. Firstly, would the? I mean, it took the UK so long to get into Europe in the first place, and they were, you know, frustrated at many terms, and then finally it, it happened. Once they leave, and in a generation or less, that says, "Well, actually, we've made a decision. We we're going to have another vote. We want to come back." What would Europe's reaction to that be?
1: Um, obviously, a generation is quite a long time, um, but I don't think there's any sort of prospect in the near to medium future of the UK rejoining Um, at the moment none of our major political parties UK wide political parties are advocating rejoin Um, not the Conservatives not the Labour Party who attribute their sort of slightly ambivalent stance on uh, the EU at the last election to why they went down to such a bad defeat so Labour has said it would try to negotiate a closer relationship and iron out some of these problems, um, whether on mobility, uh, so making it easier for people to go and do business in the EU, um, some of the things that are getting in the way of um, trade between the UK and the EU, but they aren't campaigning for rejoining. Even the Liberal Democrats, who are the most pro-EU party that we have, aren't campaigning for rejoin. It's possible, I think, down the line, that if the EU developed so that there's a sort of inner core of EU members, it's one of the things that President Macron of France talks about sometimes, that if there was a sort of inner core of very integrated countries around the Eurozone, remember the UK never joined the Euro, that if there was a very integrated, but then other countries moved into a slightly more distant relationship with the EU, but still with a bit of a say over the EU's rules, it's possible that at some point I think the UK might might join that, Uh, at the moment the option of joining what's called the European Economic Area, so being like Norway, Liechtenstein or Iceland um, would mean accepting EU rules with no say over them. I think that's quite a difficult sell in the UK, though quite a lot of people thought that was a middle way out. But I think the other critical thing is that it would have to be a unanimous decision by all EU countries to let the UK back in. Um, A lot of those EU countries, those that have been close allies of the UK while we were an EU member, were very hopeful that the UK wouldn't actually leave. There were some possibly who quite want to see the back of the UK, but others really wanted the UK to have second thoughts. We went and talked in Brussels while those very protracted negotiations were going on you would always have people e u people in the audience saying you 're not really going to leave are you there's going to be another referendum you're going to yeah. you're going to ultimately you 're not going to head with this really are you um I think now we really have left though the idea unless there was near total agreement within the u k that we wanted to go back in the idea with the population still with a really substantial chunk of um Of the population. And one of our major political parties, you know, we're no longer in a position where all our major political parties think we should be in the EU. The Conservatives are now the party of Brexit uh, and recognize that they probably need to stay the party of Brexit to hold on to their voters. So I think the EU would regard readmitting the UK as a real destabilizing force and an incredibly unattractive prospect. So I don't think that's going to happen. Scotland, though. The position of the Scottish National Party is that Brexit has justified another referendum. It, the Scottish referendum 2014 was supposed to settle that question for a generation. Uh, they now, you know, a couple of years later said, well, that's now unsettled because you voted for Brexit. So we were sold staying in the UK on a fourth prospectus because mm-hmm. you told us that was the way to stay in the EU. They have said they would apply to join. I think, uh, and this is where the uh, Owen's Catalonia point is very interesting, I think if they had a legal referendum, this is when the Scottish nationalists need a legal referendum, then Spain probably wouldn't stand in the way of them rejoining. But there is one very big issue that they would need to sort out, which is really, really difficult. We've had all these agonising debates about how to Operate the border, uh, the one land border we do have with the EU now, which is the uh, Ireland Northern Ireland border, which is still an issue in the talks. Uh, the Scottish National Party, when you ask them, do not have a good answer to how would that England Scotland border yes. operate, and you know we are highly integrated economies and they would need some answer to that if they joined the EU because the EU
0: would insist that that was
1: protected as a
0: proper EU border. Paul in Queenbin, which, as you know, is just outside Canberra, or maybe Canberra is just outside Queenbin, he says, um, what about the free trade agreement with Australia and how will it affect British farmers? Because there's also a, a labour shortage on farms as well. But as various individual countries now work, uh, free trade agreements with the UK. How is that going to affect Australia? How's
1: it going to affect Australia? If, yes. Uh, I think, I think Australia is going to be, uh, uh, the UK is quite a distant market. Australia reoriented itself away from the UK market uh, quite well. Our farmers are very worried about the Australian trade deal and the New Zealand trade deal. Both We haven't seen the detail of either of those yet. We've just got these... Agreements in principle so far, so the negotiators know what's in them. Uh, rest of us aren't so clear. Our farmers are very worried that they can't compete with uh, either New Zealand or Australia livestock. Uh, but what they're uh, they're really worried about two things, I think. One that if you get shut out for some reason from some of the Asia markets, can't export to China or whatever that we'll see a surge in exports from Australia or New Zealand into the UK and that'll put our farmers out of business. So you'll sort of use us like a sort of bit of a reserve market uh, for there. I don't think we expect huge amounts more exports in the short term, but they're a bit worried. They're worried they're being made more uncompetitive with Australian farmers because our government's doing things like banning live animal exports. So they think that they are facing um, uh, welfare costs and higher standards that are not matched in Australia, that's making them uncompetitive. But the thing that they're really, really worried about, I think, is that the deals that the UK is doing with Australia and New Zealand, the government says they don't set precedents for deals with other countries, in particular the big South American uh, beef producers, but our farmers are very worried that they do indicate that the UK is prepared to open up uh, UK agriculture to the big South American producers. Uh,
0: John and Coburg says now the UK is out of the EU, are moves to limit access to tax havens now dead. What's the story there, do you know?
1: Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, It probably means that, well, the... The EU has some very low tax jurisdictions, which is deeply resented within the EU, namely Luxembourg uh, does quite well by being quite a low tax jurisdiction and the Irish who were holdouts against this big OECD, minimum corporation tax agreement, but I think have agreed to come, come in line there. Um, and they both had tax rates that were lower, I think, than the UK's. UK... Uh, Within the EU, any moves on tax require unanimity. The UK was always a big holdout against any move. Most single market rules are made by what's called qualified majority voting. So you don't have to have all member states on board. Uh, you just have to get a weighted vote uh, number of those uh, member states, what's called a qualified majority. Um, it's possible that if they do another treaty negotiation, that without the UK the EU would agree to go to QMV on tax though so i think the irish and the luxemburgers might hold out against that one or two other jurisdictions possibly um the uk generally has been um quite a defender of its um of its tax havens so it may mean that the eu will do more on more on tax havens um i sort of rather think the uk should too but um but Some of its overseas dependencies, like Gibraltar, mm-hmm. like the British Virgin Islands, um, Bermuda, make uh, yes. do quite well out of their tax haven
0: status. So, yeah, Gibraltar, not sure, it,
1: not sure there's a necessarily necessary link there. Yeah,
0: uh, so Wayne in Oakley uh, says, What happened? Uh, didn't Gibraltar vote 99% remain?
1: Yeah, but it did, and there are negotiations going on about Gibraltar, um, because. What was quite interesting was when Spain joined the EU, it had sort of demands about the status of Gibraltar, but at that time, Spain was the applicant country and the UK was a member state. The EU is very good at defending the interests of its member states, so Spain didn't get anywhere very much. Now, there are negotiations, I think, going on on how to manage things like the frontier, stuff like that, but where the EU is now obviously on the side of Spain rather than the uk so um so it's don't know quite how that's all going to be be resolved but uh, the british government has said it will not you know sell gibraltar out um but gibraltar i think knew that it was uh, uh knew that brexit would not be good for gibraltar is why you saw that amazing 99 percent vote and actually that was the first vote you asked me where i was <laughs> on the uh, night of the 23rd of June, and Gibraltar was the first place to declare.
0: And people were pretty happy when they heard that. So uh, recently, we had the COP26 in uh, Glasgow. And Boris Johnson was very much on the front foot. Uh, ambitious climate targets he was pushing for there, even this week in that quite bizarre speech, he was talking about electric cars. And he, they, um, uh, Britain certainly wants to start uh, eliminate coal. We've already seen yeah. uh, whole days go by where no coal was used to for uh, to, to provide power for the UK. Yeah. Is this to do with Brexit as well? What's what's behind what? But does he truly believe in this or is he doing it for some other reasons?
1: No, I think he does actually truly believe in uh, in this. Um, and he's putting himself a bit of, out of a limb with some in his party. But actually, unlike the US, unlike Australia, um, our successive Conservative governments have always been pro-action on climate change, I think. Going back to Margaret Thatcher, who in 1989 spoke about the need for governments to take action on climate change at a speech on the U- to the UN General Assembly, and became the first really leading politician to signal that this was a big problem that needed tackling. So I, uh, so I think Boris Johnson sort of living on in that tradition. Some people uh, slightly snarkily say it's because his wife uh, is an environmental campaigner, and this shows her influence on, on Boris Johnson, but he is very keen on climate change. What he's quite a lot weaker on is saying to people this will mean this will make some quite, diff- for some quite difficult decisions, this could cost you quite a lot of money. Um, uh, he's very keen on technological solutions, so he's described sometimes in government terms a bit of a techno optimist, uh, and he's also, uh, and this is one of the prime minister's characteristics, he's also quite, you know, good at at the same time, you know, being quite gung ho about things like air travel. Uh, there's a line in the government's net zero strategy about wanting to be able to carry on flying guilt free, and I think. Boris Johnson really wants a sort of guilt-free, hassle-free way of dealing Mm. with climate change. Um, But I think he personally is is quite serious about doing this, whether he actually has the capability to get his government, not just to publish an ambitious net zero strategy, which they finally, finally did in the run-up to that COP, but actually turn it into delivery. I think that's a bigger question mark. But I wouldn't actually doubt his sincerity on this.
0: With about five minutes left before the news... What about the future of Boris Johnson then? He was, along with Nigel Farage, the most outspoken leave advocate and became Prime Minister almost sort of on the back of that. Uh, And now it seems as though he's losing the confidence not only of his parliamentary colleagues but the nation as well. What's the future for Boris Johnson?
1: Well, he's still, uh, you know, he's now a midterm Prime Minister. Uh, and midterm prime ministers tend to do very badly in the polls, but actually it's only in the last week or two after some really bad mishandlings of parliament, some issues that Boris Johnson's dipped at all below Labour in the opinion polling, and his ability to hold on to the voters who moved over to him is quite uncanny, and I think is the thing... That the Conservatives will be looking at. I mean, a lot of Conservatives, very critical of his number 10 operation, so his Downing Street operation, people surrounding him in the Prime Minister's office. Um, he's clearly handling the parliamentary party, which is amazingly indisciplined. Um, you know, we're not like Australia where you sort of chuck your prime ministers out or uh you know overnight, another one pops up, much harder to get rid of prime ministers. I think you've made it a bit harder than it used to be. Uh, but he is coming under policy pressure on right, left and centre from factions within his party. Um, so he's finding it harder to get through his policy agenda there. But, you know, the Conservatives elected Boris Johnson as leader for one reason. I don't think there were many of them who thought he was going to be an incredibly great, you know, gifted administrator. He'd been a frankly, pretty poor foreign secretary, which was his only ministerial post before that. Uh, but they thought he was their only election winner. When they, when Theresa May stood down, the Conservatives have just got 9%, I think, in the European elections held that summer. I mean, they were polling absolutely terribly. And they looked around, they had the Brexit party under Nigel Farage snapping at their heels and they thought, Who is the one person that might deliver us an electoral victory? And Boris Johnson delivered them after, I remember, 10 years of Conservative rule, delivered them a majority they couldn't have dreamt of. And I think that's ultimately his source of strength, that if you look around, they might say, well, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak, he looks a bit more competent Liz Truss mm, seems to really like her trade deals. Pretty Patel, well, she's making a bit of a mess of channel crossings, but she talks a good game on these things. But ultimately, you know, Boris Johnson is known in the UK as the Heineken politician, the politician who reach parts other Conservatives have no hope of reaching. And if they ditch him, I think there'll be a lot of people in the parliamentary party who fear they're ditching their prospects of the majority next time round.
0: Again, with only about a minute and a half to go, and I know it's a difficult question to answer, but COVID came at exactly the wrong time. We don't really know the effect of Brexit at the moment. When do you think this might shake out? And we're going to know. Are we talking about 10, 20 years in the future? Or it's much really
1: difficult because it's really difficult because if you really want to see the effects of Brexit, You would have to construct an alternative world in which Brexit hadn't happened and say, well, look, we'd have this. We'd be spending more on this. We'd be able to do that. Your turkey would be on your Christmas dinner plate and stuff like that. So I think there'll be lots of minor things that happen that pop up out of the woodwork. The people who thought Brexit was a terrible idea will say, that's because of Brexit, that's because of Brexit. The people who thought Brexit was a good idea will say, no, it's this, no, it's that, whatever. And actually, there'll be no sort of real definitive way of settling that argument. People are really good at interpreting evidence to justify the position they initially held. And we'll see that uh, probably for years to come.
0: Well, thank you for explaining it all for us this morning. Jill, thank you very, very much. Enjoy that next election night party whenever it happens and we'll hopefully talk to you again then.
1: Thank you very much indeed. Good, good morning, good
0: night. Indeed. And enjoy the ashes, Jill. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you.
1: England <laughs> to win. We win sporting trophies, more or less, until the T20 World. <laughs> we will now see. Now we Brexit.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Jill. Jill Rutter there is our very special guest talking Brexit this morning.
1: Overnights with Rod Quinn
0: on ABC Radio.